0: Hope Church. All right, good morning. It's a privilege and a blessing to be here with you this morning. Um, Whether you join us here in the parking lot, good to see folks here today, or online. Um, We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John, and this morning we're blessed to study John chapter 20, where we see the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but I want to take us back um, to John chapter 19 just for a couple of minutes this morning um, as we set the scene. And just um, have a couple of reminders. Um, when Jesus was, was on the cross, he said, um, it is finished. This um, word, to um is an important word. And it is it is finished in in English might not fully give us um, the the meaning the the full implications of what Jesus is saying there when he says it is finished. This word to tell us that was a word that's been found um, on ancient documents on ancient receipts to show that a debt had been paid in full or that a tax bill you know had been paid in full. So when Jesus is saying, it is finished, he is saying to Telestai, he is saying that he has accomplished his work. That he has accomplished his work. Now imagine that. He has paid our debt in full. Now how good is that for us to hear this morning. And then Jesus. After saying that. After accomplishing his task. It says that he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. He laid down his life. As a ransom for many. Remember in the, in the Old Testament. We're told that without the shedding of blood. In God's economy. Without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. Or there is no doing away with sins. And so this sin was paid for through the death of Jesus at the cross. Your sins and my sins were paid for. Now, whether that's effective for us, whether that makes a difference for us, whether that's helpful for us, it's only as good as as we take Jesus at his word and as we believe him. And then we see at the end of chapter 19, Joseph of Arimathea And Nicodemus, the one who had gone at night in John chapter 3 to figure out who Jesus really is. You know, if he was really the Messiah who had come, but went at night because he was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee and he, he knew that most of the other Pharisees with him didn't, you know, were opposed to Jesus. And those two take the body of Jesus and prepare it and put it into the empty tomb. And they're willing to be publicly identified with him in that way, regardless of the future implications. And that's significant because they did that at the darkest moment, when all seemed to be completely lost. They publicly let it be known that they, that they loved Jesus. And they were willing to be identified with him regardless of the future implications. And remember, they did that. It's amazing. They did that, again, when all seemed lost to the disciples. When it seemed like hope had been done away with. And they're willing to take their stand at that moment. You see, it's not difficult, folks, to take your stand... When everybody that you care about or everybody that is in power with you agrees with you. It's not hard to take a stand then. It's hard to take a stand when there's going to be opposition to that stand. So let's pray and then we're going to um, jump right into John chapter 20. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your love this morning as we look in And to your word, we pray that you would teach us from us, that that we would be humble, that you would work both in our hearts and our minds. You would help us to see clearly, and then you would move us in the direction of your reality, who you are, of what you said is right and true. Jesus, we pray that we would be moved towards you in love this morning. Help us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Dear Jesus, we ask it in your precious name. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so just a moment there, just a reminder or maybe new information depending on um, what you've read and what you've we, we've heard in your life. But Mary Magdalene, before she met Jesus was actually a, a demon possessed woman who was in a terrible s- state. And Jesus freed her from her bondage, the spiritual bondage that she was in. And she was freed and she became a follower of Jesus. And so on this, you know, bright or not even bright, just early just the break of dawn she's at the tomb now what the other gospels tell us is that you know there had been a a Roman guard had been put at the tomb you know the tomb had been sealed it has this big stone in front of it you know she doesn't know exactly what she's going to be able to do when she she gets there it was it was typical that as a, a body was prepared, you know, with spices, that sometimes more would be put on at an, at another point. But what is she going to do? How is she going to move that huge stone herself? How is she? Gonna, you know, she doesn't have it all figured out. She just knows that she needs to go to the tomb. And when she gets there, she just sees that the stone had been moved away. And she doesn't even, it doesn't seem like she even goes goes in or looks in. She's just, you know, something has happened here. And he's not going to be here. And I got to go tell Simon Peter. And her first thought is not that Jesus has fulfilled what he said he would do and that he's fulfilled the scriptures and that he's risen from the dead. Her first thought is not one of belief. Her first thought is very practical. Somebody must have come and taken his body away. She's not automatically thinking the miraculous has happened. And that's an important point because many who, you know, oppose, um, you know, the the literal resurrection of, of, of Jesus... Um, One of the things that that, that certain ones argue is that, you know, the disciples and all were psychologically prepared, you know, to be able to hallucinate these visions of Jesus because this is what they expected to happen. But as you read the text, we see that's not the case at all. She's expecting Jesus to be in the tomb and when he's not there she's expecting that someone that uh, you know humans have done this and taken him away. And so it says in verse 3 Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb so they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Who is this other disciple? You know verse 2 um, the author John writes and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved you know and this is how John refers to himself in this context and, and multiple times in, in the gospel of John he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved because you see that's his identity it's more important to him that you know that Jesus loved him than to even know his name Y'all get that? It's more important to John that you know that Jesus loved him. That's more important to him than than that you even know what his name is. But it's John. And he has a humble brag in verse 4. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. He's basically saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a little... I'm a little faster than, uh, than Peter is. As, um, a young one that I'm very fond of would say, I smoked (laughs) them. We had a race and I smoked them. And, uh, he gets there first, but this is the difference. Verse 5, And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now there's a couple of interesting things in there again. You know, Simon Peter, he might not be the fastest. But you know, Simon Peter, whatever he does, he, he goes full bore. You know, with, with with Peter, he's one of those people where it's going to be, it's 100% or nothing. That's just how he is. That's his personality. You see it time and again. And when he's on the right thing, that's really great. When he's on the wrong thing, you know, that can, um, you know, he's going to have to get corrected, right? So that's that's his personality. But remember, Simon Peter had already made, you know, his, his great declarations of faith that Jesus, you know, was the Christ. And here... You know, John lets us know that he's made a, a great declaration of faith as he says he saw and believed because he sees the the linen cloths and how things are are done here. That this wasn't a, that Jesus' body had been moved or that there was a theft of some sort or something like that. He now comes to an understanding that his Savior is is risen. In verse 11, it says, you know, so John and Peter, they go back to their houses. But in verse 11, it says, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener said to him, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now there's something that's really, you know, fascinating about this scene. Peter and, and and John are in the in the tomb, and you know they don't see the angels. Jesus doesn't appear to them. He waits, lets them leave, and then when it's just Mary, when it's just Mary Magdalene. Then she sees the angels. He has the angels speak to her. He's there. She mistakes him for the gardener. And then he calls her name. And then she has recognition. There are several things going on there. I mean, in terms of her, you know, she, again, she's not expecting to see Jesus. And we know that she's been weeping. So she's not, I mean, her, her eyes are clouded. As she sees. But when he says her name. Reminds of Jesus when he says. You know my sheep know my voice. When he says her name. She then recognizes. And apparently. I mean she says. You know Rabona. Meaning you know. My teacher. And. And he says, don't cling to me. So we can obviously assume that from that scene, you know, that she has somehow grabbed hold of him, you know, probably around his feet. Overcome with emotion. Overcome with, sh- with a-, a surprised joy that words are not adequate for. that would be I think, pretty much impossible to describe with a pen and paper. And this is an important section of scripture. We see here the value that Jesus had always placed on on women, the valuable role they had in his ministry, and the valuable, and, and his view of their of their value, which is consistent with the teaching of Scripture back from Genesis chapter one. From God's per- perspective, nothing changed. Nothing is different. You know. Jesus didn't have to teach like a new perspective of that God has on women or something like that. No. Back from Genesis chapter 1. In his image, God created us male and female. It's back in Genesis chapter 1. But what is significant in the cultural context of this time, if the point is is for Jesus to prove that he is the Messiah and that he is risen from the dead and that everybody in you know Israel and in the world should believe in him, if his point if he's trying to prove that from a a legal you know what would stand up in the court of law perspective, this isn't how you do it. He would have showed himself To Peter and John first. Because the testimony. In the courts at that time. The testimony of of men and the testimony of women. Was not held with the same weight. So he would have showed to them first. And then he would have gone to the chief priest. And showed himself. And then he would have gone to Pilate. And showed himself. You see Jesus could have done the things. That would have eliminated any need for faith. He could have eliminated any need for faith in the sense that, I mean, he could have not ascended back to the Father and told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. He could have just stayed, set up his kingdom, you know, on the throne of David, you know, had, had... vanquished the Roman Empire and made them subject to his rule and reign and the rest of the world. He could have done that in that moment. He could have eliminated any need to believe and to trust. Now what I'm gonna what I argue is Jesus left plenty of evidence If a person is willing to believe. Jesus left plenty of evidence. If someone with an open heart and open mind. Looks at the situation and says what is truth. But he doesn't give so much evidence as to eliminate the necessity of faith. And the necessity to take him at his word. The necessity to trust him. There's a balance there. But it's a beautiful scene. And she went and told the disciples. And then in verse 19 it says In the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And this is so significant that, you know, Jesus, okay, so Jesus has um, risen from the dead and in this resurrected body that he has. It has certain attributes. It is, it is real. It is material. As we'll see later, it can be touched. And seen yet, he has the capacity, says the doors were shut, and then he just appears in the midst of them. But it's so crucial, folks, to understand that Jesus physically bodily rose from the dead. You see, here's another thing that people do. They'll say, you know, this, this scripture and most of the scriptures are just, it's just allegories. It's just good stories to teach you a moral lesson. And they, they strip the scripture of its reality. And by doing so, they take away its power and its truth. You see, Jesus did not come to this earth to go to the cross to pay for our sins and to be risen from the dead just to teach us how to like be decent human beings. He didn't come to just teach us you know, some moral code to live by of like, yeah, you've got the Ten Commandments but here's just a little extra for you. You see, that's not why Jesus came, and 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 I think in our nation, one reason why it seems like the Bible doesn't make as big a difference as it should—that Jesus doesn't make a, a, you know as big a difference in our culture and how people actually live—is because so many people have wanted to to treat. The scriptures as if, you know, Jesus is just giving us this moral law. And if you just try, you know, you should just try harder. I mean, he said, he said a good standard and you should just try harder to meet that standard. So you're a, a decent, you know, human being who, you know, you, you, you love and try to take care of your neighbors and stuff like that. Right. The golden rule and all of that. But folks, without the power of God working inside of a person, these words aren't going to help people. Not actually going to change hearts and minds. Without surrender, we try just trying to get the flesh to do a little better. Isn't why Jesus went to the cross. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And we have said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. When Jesus had received the Holy Spirit, you know, he's giving them spiritual power and authority, the indwelling of the you know the, the Holy Spirit. And as the scripture continues, it's what's what we see in the scriptures, people believe and, and receive the Spirit of God. And you see, it's receiving the Spirit of God within you that now gives you power over the flesh. See our, our our flesh is sinful our flesh is selfish our our flesh our basic human nature is bent not towards doing good but it's bent towards selfishness and even doing good a lot of times that good will be done in a way that benefits one's flesh not in a way that's contrary to oneself and the flesh is weak. So this idea that if you just have the right information, if you just have the right code of how to live, and you know, you can on your own, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and say, okay, I'm gonna live a decent moral life. Even the those who accomplish at the best are gonna fall, fall short Of God's desire. Because, and and the first thing there is, God's first desire is to have our hearts. And the person who says, I'm on my own, can just follow this moral code and these standards and be a good person. You see, God doesn't have that person's heart, that person has their own heart. So, what God desires most in that situation, God doesn't get. Now, I might be messing with some of y'all theology right there. Because I said what God wants, in that case, God doesn't get. See, some of y'all think that God gets whatever he wants. In a certain sense, that is 100% true. The plan for Jesus to die for our sins was going to be accomplished. His resurrection was going to be accomplished. His ascension to heaven be accomplished. His return will be accomplished. His rule forever and ever will be accomplished. But you see, that's not all that God wants. See, God also wants our hearts. God also wants the totality of who we are to be in loving relationship with him. So no, God doesn't always get what God wants. And you see folks, for you and I who follow Jesus, when we sin, God's not getting what he wants. When we say I know this is this is wrong and this is right, but I'm going to choose the wrong, God's not getting what he wants. Because God wants us to obey, and he's given us, in the power of the Spirit, the capacity to obey. You know, the capacity to do what is right. So God expects and wants us to do what is right. The Scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit be grieving if the Holy Spirit is getting everything the Holy Spirit wants? The Holy Spirit doesn't get everything the Holy Spirit wants. The Holy Spirit grieves when we... Put our flesh back on the throne of our hearts. And I mean that in a very, and I don't mean that in a, understand what I'm talking about there is not salvation or losing salvation or anything like that. What I'm talking about there is the daily walk of the believer. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit when we do. God's not getting what God wants. What does God want? God wants what's best for us, and what's best for us is to be in full communion with Him. Verse 24, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see and his hands into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it the my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Okay. So it's, it's, you know, the following Sunday week has passed the following Sunday. They're back beating again to remember the Lord, you know, to, to, to pray, and to talk and to figure out, you know, what, what's going on here? What are we supposed to do next? Jesus comes again. Peace to you. Now each time he says peace to you, you got to understand, you know, the, the, in a room, you're in a room. Just imagine being one of those disciples. In a room, the doors are shut. All of a sudden, bam, there's Jesus in the middle of the room. You're going to be like, whoa. You know, your, your natural reaction, I think, is going to be to tremble. To have fear. But Jesus says, peace to you. Jesus has to calm them and take away that natural fear that they would have of the Supernatural. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it to my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You see, Jesus knew Thomas. He knew what he was thinking. See, here's the thing, folks. You might as well just go ahead and be honest with God in your conversation because he already knows your deepest thoughts. It's not like you're fooling God. Well, I'm not going to say this in my prayer because, you know, I don't want God to... What? No, God knows everything you think. God knows every every doubt you have. God knows every fear you have. God knows every hope and dream you have. God knows all the good and all the bad. He knows everything about you. You're not going to sit there and have like some secret thoughts that God doesn't know about. And that should help us to think about that and to guard our thought life and not when when the wrong ideas and thoughts come into our head that we don't sit there and entertain those. Because God knows what we're thinking too. And a lot of times, I'll just go ahead and say this real quick. A lot of times, it's not that initial thought that comes into your head through temptation or whatever it is that is sinful. Sometimes it's putting ourselves in positions where we know those thoughts are more likely to come about can be a problem and sometimes you know just in life things pop into our head it's it, and that isn't necessarily a sin but it's the entertaining of those thoughts the continuing of those thoughts in our minds that is what the sin is failing to take captive every thought in Christ what does that mean like capture the thought crush it with truth and move on See, that's not sinful, but meditating on the sin, whatever that sin is, that that that's sinful. That becomes sinful real quick. But here, you know, Jesus knows Thomas. He knows what he thought, and so he is just able to address it head on, Thomas. Reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is what you're saying: that the one that you saw on the cross, you know, you saw him give up his his spirit, and who was in the tomb, and on the third day, arose. See, Thomas, we, I mean, we have to admit here, Thomas was given some pretty special grace. That though, you know, he had said he wasn't going to believe unless he had seen, you know, Jesus met him where it was. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God my Lord and my God you know he's basically saying it's it you know my king and my God my Lord and my God see this is this is really significant because remember again Thomas is a devout Jewish person he is a monotheist he doesn't believe in many gods he believes there's one God. And so Thomas right here is either making a great claim that is true or he is committing blasphemy. There's no middle ground. It's either true or it's blasphemy. Yeah, in simplistic terms, I mean, it's, it's true or it's false. Question for many people today, as you hear this message is, do you believe that what Thomas says here is true or a lie? And that, folks, should determine everything about you and Jesus and you and the Bible and you and your life moving forward you see because here if Thomas is is telling a lie when he says to Jesus my lord and my god if Thomas is telling a lie then that makes Jesus a liar because this is what we claim to be Jesus receives the worship. He doesn't say, Don't call me God. This makes Jesus either true or false, folks. If he's false, then why would you want to have anything to do with something that is false? Why would you go into anything saying, yeah, you know, this is going to be my belief system and my worldview, even though, you know, this, this stuff is false. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Like there is nothing in, 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 from my perspective, as I read the scriptures, there is nothing more futile than just like nominal Christianity. I mean, what a waste of time. What a waste of effort. What a waste of everything. Like nominal Christianity should be like your last option. But that's the majority of what is in the United States that calls itself Christian. And really, that's the majority of what's in the world that calls itself Christian. It's a waste of time, folks. If Jesus isn't actually who he says he is. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if Thomas is making a statement that is true, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is God, then the only thing that makes sense in that scenario is to surrender to him as like, Jesus, I believe in in you, that you paid my debt at the cross. You paid it in full. Thank you. I believe in you. Thank you for paying for my debt that I couldn't pay no matter how hard I tried. I surrender my life and everything to you and I want to follow you. Jesus, I want you to be my king. So I'm going to live life in the power of your Holy Spirit how you want me to live it. Period. End of story. Regardless of what the world says, Regardless of what the world says, I'm going to go with what Jesus says. With what, Regardless of what the culture has said is now not sin, if Jesus says it's sin, guess what? It's still sin. If Jesus says it's bad, I'm going to call it bad. If Jesus says it's good, I'm going to call it good. Like, he gets to decide. I don't, I'm not deciding it. He decides it. Jesus decides it. But you see, then at that point, if if this what this is true, it makes sense to orient everything in your life to have your identity in Jesus Christ and to live according to His teaching, according to His way. Like that's the logical conclusion. Again, a half-hearted approach, if it's true, should be like really unappealing. Like what? If, if Jesus is who He says He is, why why would I like want to go fifty percent in on that? Why, why would I go fifty percent on that? If Jesus is who He says He is, I mean, if Jesus is who He says He is. It would make sense. To go, I am all in, a hundred percent. That's what's logical in that situation. And I know in our world today, logic is kind of a thing that's not so popular right now, it seems like, but regardless, we need to deal with the reality that Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, and we need to decide where we stand. We stand with Thomas or we stand on the other side of Thomas. Thomas. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Jesus obviously knew that what he had done for Thomas, you know, wasn't going to be normal. See, Thomas got some extra grace here in, in, in that situation. The, uh, the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul and was just the, the, the destroyer of the church Paul, he got to meet Jesus as well on the road to Damascus. He got to have a, a an experience. Abnormal. An abnormal experience. Most of us. We had to hear their testimonies. The testimonies of others. We read the scriptures. And you know some of us. Didn't want to believe those things at first. And. You know, had to really dig into it and say, is this true? And we're convinced that it is, and so then believed in him. See, but some folks, see, they grow up riding the coattails of somebody else's faith. Folks, that only works for so long. Because at some point, you've got to figure out what you believe and why. You see, it's not good enough to say, and, it's, and I would say this to anybody believing anything it's not good enough to say well that's what my mama believed or my grandmama believed or my daddy believed or my, d- my granddaddy believed and so that's why I believe it you see that, that's not good enough folks you got to know why you believe or don't believe because you're not going to get accepted in because of somebody else's faith And this is why John writes, there's going to be one more chapter, but he says this, and I mean, he's not writing in chapters, but there there is another section next week. But verse 30 says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. So this is the point that John wrote it. He said, you know. He's basically saying, Jesus did, I'm not telling you everything here. Jesus did a lot of other stuff too. But these are written. He specifically wrote what he wrote. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the anointed one. You know, that Jesus is the king of kings. The son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. Where is their life? It's in the name of Jesus. How do you receive it? Believing. You see, folks, if you believe in Jesus, the scriptures instruct you to be baptized. The scriptures instruct you to take the bread and the cup and to remember Jesus and what he has done. The scriptures instruct you to go and tell the world. Make disciples of all the families of the earth. You see, there's all these instructions, but you see, to love your neighbor as yourself. But you see, here's here's the key thing. If you try to do all those other things, but have not believed that Jesus is the Christ, then all of that other stuff is not for profit. It does you no good. It is not beneficial to you. And this is one of the big problems that we have. Because we got, we had churches baptizing people without even asking if the people have believed in Jesus. Does that make any sense? We've got got churches saying, everybody come take communion. It doesn't matter if you, I mean, they're they're not even saying, hey, this is for people who have believed in Jesus. Got people teaching Sunday school classes who haven't believed in Jesus. Got people who are deacons and elders in churches that haven't believed in Jesus. Does that make any sense? got churches saying they have so many members and half of them haven't believed in Jesus. Folks, we can't play games with this. We can't just try to look good with numbers. Because what matters is Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God? Because I believe if that's true and genuine, you know, you've come to that point where you said, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. You've asked Jesus to save you and Jesus has saved you. You see, now there's great potential for the future. You see, you might make some dumb mistakes along the way. You might, you, you're not going to be, you're not going to be perfect, but I know that when you do wrong or when I do wrong, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us of that wrong. I know there's going to be an upward trajectory of growth in your life because there's going to be the discipline of God to take you where you need to be. And it might take time, but there will be progress. So I if you actually believe in Jesus, I have f- fully hope that that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus, as the scripture says. But for anybody who actually doesn't believe in Jesus, I have no hope that any amount of going to church meetings or any amount of prayer or any amount of Bible study or any amount of doing good will actually conform that person to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not that we change and then Jesus accepts us. It's that we believe in Jesus and then Jesus changes us. That's the order of things, folks. Because without Jesus being the one who does the the changing, then all of your changes are just based on the ability of your own flesh, which we know is weak. But if the change in your life come about because of the power of the Holy Spirit active at work in your life, then we know we're building on a firm foundation. please hear my heart on that folks it's not it's not to criticize it's not to be a downer of some sort but i think we should all have a real fear that there are so many people who are hearing this message that they're okay when they're not okay. See, I'd rather err on the side of, hey, you better make sure you're okay. You better actually make sure of where you stand with Thomas or against Thomas. I'd rather err on that side of things and just hammer it home that everything hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus and your acceptance of it and denial of it. Everything hinges on that, period. End of story. I'd rather just hammer that home time and time again and risk whatever on that side than to risk not preaching that and somebody thinking that they're okay when they're not okay. See, I'm not trying to give you unfounded fear because there are people that are going to say, you know. You know, you have these things and and people try to convince everybody that they don't know God so that more people will come forward or whatever. I'm not trying to do that. But we just got to be certain, where do you stand? You've got to be certain, where do you stand? Don't leave it to doubt or question. You're either with Thomas saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God, or you're not. You're in one of two places this morning. Make sure that where you think you are lines up with the reality of actually where you are. Not based on what man's standard is or what man's traditions are, what people have said you should do or shouldn't do, but on what Jesus has said and what the scripture has said and these things that were written that you might believe. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, i just so thankful that these words were written by John. Who had seen the empty tomb. Who saw the crucifixion, who saw the empty tomb, who saw the risen savior. And risen King. And that He wrote this for us through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we, so many around this world, would have opportunity to believe in Your name, dear Jesus. And for those of us who have believed in Your name, is, you know, we take the bread and and cup in, in our vehicles or in our homes this morning, Lord, we give you thanks and praise and we say, thank you, Jesus, that you paid that debt at the cross for me. And for those who are in the position of Thomas, Lord, may you give them conviction and all the help they need to see the reality of who you are, Jesus, and to not be unbelieving, but believing. So they may know and remember you as well. We ask it in your name, dear Jesus, and give you all praise and all glory.